0: This morning, we have the privilege of hearing from Andrew Murphy. Andrew is a second-year intern. He is finishing up his second year with us. And actually, in the next few weeks, him and his wife, Lindsay, are going to be heading off to Dallas to study at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so we're going to, we're going to miss them a lot, but we're excited to see how the Lord works and moves in them over the next over the next few years, um, we're thankful for everything you've done over the last two years. Your discipleship, your mentoring students, your leadership. And we're, uh, we're just very thankful for you. So here's Andrew. Well, thank you, Marty. Uh-huh. I mean, myself and my beautiful, better wife, Lindsay. She's sitting right there. You'd be privileged to meet her if you get a chance. But uh, we're, we're heading up to Dallas. And we're really excited because, you know, I get to go to Dallas Seminary and become a professional sayer of truths and something like that. And, and Lindsay is going to be dealing for at least one more year, uh, some fourth graders and she's going to be my sugar mama. So, uh, we're, we're excited about this new adventure that's ahead of us, but we're also kind of nostalgic. We've been here for six years. You know, we came in as freshmen together, actually in the same impact camp and that's where we met, but it's not when we started dating, but, uh, we've been here for six years. I've been, I've been working here and I've met friends, um, have people I would call family, and I'm just so thankful to have met them, and I'm kind of sad to leave, and so I couldn't think of a better way to, to say goodbye than to share one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, and I think it's a story that we all know, but as I've walked with the Lord and as I've become a Christian, I, I went to church all my life, but I didn't know Christ, but since I've known Christ, he's revealed just how significant a story that we've all heard if you've gone to church, you've heard it a hundred times, but maybe, maybe this will be your first time, and I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, but it, Luke 15 talks about uh, the prodigal son, and I think what, what God has for, for you guys this morning is, is something that my preparation can't, can't do. It's not something we can understand, and so my prayer is that the Spirit would come and, and speak with power and, and show, in the same way he showed me, how, how great his love is for us. And so uh, we're going to start reading Luke 15. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read 1 and 2, and skip to verse 11. So starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Turning to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And there he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, so my my guess is that probably about ninety-five percent of the people in this room have heard that story before. But I'd also guess that that you wouldn't understand that that it's it's this maybe maybe you do, maybe you're smarter than I am, I don't want to challenge y'all's intelligence, but but this story alone separates Christianity from every other religion and every other pursuit and everything this world has to offer. This story talks about why Jesus is different than anything else. And so I, I think for us to get our heads wrapped around what Jesus is actually saying, we need to put ourselves into the context of the audience he's, uh, who's listening to him. Jesus is talking to people thousands of years ago in a completely different country. And so we're going to put together all we know about their culture and try to gauge how they would have heard this and what this would have meant. So for starters, we have this pesky son, the prodigal son. And he comes up to his father, and he says, Father, give me, give me what's coming to me. Give me my share of the property. And, and what he's really asking for, and, and, and like, like our culture, their culture had kind of a, a will system. We have wills, and when, you, when we die, you know, our stuff goes to our family members. And, and it was similar with them. When a father died, all he had went to uh, his son's equally distributed, with the exception that the firstborn got a double portion that all the other sons got. It's a little math question. If he has two sons, how much of the property of his father does the younger son get? Ah, A plus, one-third. You're still using your brain. All right. So, so one-third of the property would have gone to the son. And we're like, okay, yeah, he just gives him one-third of his money. Well, back then, we, we don't really get this but, but what your wealth was, your wealth was found in your land. And, and for you, for the, for the father to have fulfilled this request, he would have had to sell off a third of his land. And there's a couple things we don't realize. First of all, we're, we're in a very high honor culture. So the very request the son makes, there's only one response for a Middle Eastern patriarch of this time. And that would have been to drive out the son with verbal, if not physical blows and never let him come back. That's the only response. Um, And and so that request that the son makes would have appalled the audience. It would have shocked them. But what would have been even more shocking, even more ridiculous, was the father's response. Because it says he divides his property between them. And we don't really get that, but the the Greek word for property is, is the word bios. And it's where we get the word biology from. Literally, the father is dividing his life. Because when we think about it, stuff, so I own a car, I own a house. I don't own a wife, but I have one. I, I, I have all this food and my stuff and my bed and this is all mine, it belongs to me. But they would have thought, no, I belong to the land. I belong to the land. It's been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And, and this is my, my, the way, the bios literally means it, that which sustains life. To lose your land is to lose your way to provide for you and your family. And to lose a part of your land is to lose status and identity within the community. But we see that the father, instead of casting the son out, en- endures rejected love and he tears his life in two. And he gives one third of his property to his son. And when and we see, which is one of the craziest things, enduring rejected love is, is so difficult for us humans. It is so difficult because let's say you have a best friend who betrays you or really bad breakup with that person. The first instinct is to be like, I, I didn't really care about them anyways. I knew it wasn't going to work out or I wasn't that close to him anyways. Like he, he was a fool. We hang out, but whatever. Like you kind of diminish and, and revoke the affection to, to try to get rid of the hurt, to try to make yourself feel better. But it's not what this father does. Instead, he gives him he, he answers the request and, and our, st- our story then goes to the son, takes and gathers all that he has, and he goes off to a distant country. If he's an American, man, he's going to Vegas, baby. So he's jumping in some wild parties. Man, he's gambling, and he's living it up. He's hooking up with all the women, and it is awesome. It is reckless, it's crazy, and he's having the time of his life. But one of the problems with reckless living is that it is reckless. And eventually, he squanders all, all that he has. And not only that, it says a severe famine hits, like, boo, like, so economy is just bursting. He's got no money and he's hungry. And so what he has to do is he has to hire himself out. The self-indulgent pig who wanted to take his father's inheritance before his father was dead, basically said, I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. I wish you were dead. He's a self-indulgent pig who ends up feeding pigs. Not only that, his rock bottom goes so low that he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And it says, no one gave him anything. Okay, so this is where he is. And he realizes, wow, I, I messed up. I have sinned. No one had to tell him that. He knew, he knew what he was doing was wrong. But he says, okay, how many of my, my father's hired servants? How many of them have more than enough bread? I'm going to go back and I'm going to go to my father and I'm, I'm going to devise an apology. Okay, here it is. So he comes up with this three-part apology. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What he's really saying is, I know I messed up, and I know that means I can't come back to the family. But if you treat me as one of your hired servants, maybe what that probably means is, let me put me as one of the apprentice, apprentices of your skilled servants, and let me gain a skill, that way I can work my, work my way up, and, 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 and serve you, and work you, and, and pay you back for the wrong I've done you. Just give me bread. That's his, that's his plan. It's a restitution plan. Let me pay you back for what I've done wrong, right? And so he's, he's coming back, Walking to his father, and it says that while he was still a long way off, the father sees him, and he feels compassion, and he runs to him. Okay, and another thing: this would have, I mean, the audience at this point is just like, "Oh, Jesus, what are you saying?" Because Middle Eastern patriarchs don't run. To do so, you'd have to bare your legs, pull your tunic up, and bare your legs, which is dishonorable. You can't do that. Women ran, children ran, but the man of the house never run. But this father does. And many say that this father looks a lot more like a mother in this culture than a father would. Nonetheless, he runs to his son, embraces him, and kisses him. And can you imagine being the son? Just like expecting the worst and then seeing this? You'd be so confused. But anyways, he starts to fumble through his apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned before you. Before he gets the third part out, he gets interrupted. And the father says, give him the best robe. Put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet, and let's kill the fat calf and let's celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's, let's celebrate. And so they start to party it up, okay? And so there's a big party going. And meanwhile, we have the older brother. He's been working all day out in the field. He's sweaty. He's hot. He's had a long day. And he's coming, and he hears, you know, gets to the place where he can start hearing music and dancing. Like, what's going on? What's going on? And so he calls one of us, for, hey, what's, what's up? Your father's killed the fattened calf. Your, son's, your, your, your his son is back. He's brought him back safe and sound. We're, we're celebrating. And he's like, the fattened calf? And we're like, what's the deal with the calf, dude? Like, what is the, what is the big deal with the calf? What does this mean? Well, in that, in that culture, in that day, meat was something you almost never ate. Meat was a delicacy. And so you had fish, you had goat every once in a while, you had maybe a duck or a dove or whatever kind of birds they had. But the fattened calf, and that was the, premier prime celebratory meal man it meant a big deal it meant something was going on that was huge and so the whole village would have been there and we see the older brother gets upset about this what he's upset about is this is meant for a great celebration and he doesn't think this is a great celebration or something worth celebrating and so he's mad and he publicly insults his father by refusing to go into the party so if I'm the dad, and, and this is what's happened, my son's back, I'm celebrating, and, and I go into to my older brother, and he's, he's upset and mad, I'm, and he wants, wants a goat, right? I'm, I'd be like, go out to the field and have a goat. I'm going back and having some steak, fool. Like, and that's not what we see happens. We see, we see that the older brother, contrary to his younger brother, he divided, who had a three-part apology, he now has a three-part argument. So his father comes to him, he says, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat with my friends, and he gets the calf? Are you kidding me? So I, I just dare you, dare one of you, to go to your dad and start with a demand by saying, look, see how that goes. In our culture, that's offensive, so you can imagine what that would have been like for them. Man, this father, if he was following the rules, would he'd have no sons left. They're disrespectful, and they're gone, right? But, but that's not what the father does. We see the father's In verse 31, he says, And then he said to him, Son, that Greek word is a term of affection. It literally means my child. And he celebrates one more time what has just happened. Your brother who was dead is alive. He was lost and is found. And there is great reason to celebrate. It's a great story, right? Except for the fact that it ends on a huge cliffhanger. Does the older brother go in? What happens? Man, if this is Netflix, we're waiting 20 seconds to watch the next episode because it bothers us that much. We want to know, right? What is Jesus doing? Why is he telling us a story like this? What is the purpose? Huh? Well, I think we see from the text that Jesus—he's doing three things. First, Jesus redefines God. He redefines sin, and finally, he redefines salvation. So he's redefining things in, in three things: God, sin, salvation. So here we go. Jesus redefines God. I get the God who will, who will punish me when I make mistakes. You know, so he's up in heaven and I'm, I'm not listening to him. He's like waiting for me with a bolt of light and just go right in the face, you know, and that makes sense. Rain and fire down. Okay, I get that, right? This fool asked for his dad's inheritance. scenes ends up with a pig. I get that, right? That makes sense to me. But do you understand that Jesus more than anyone else in all of history refers to God as his father. More than anyone else, he refers to God as father. In fact, every single time in all of scripture, except for one time, Jesus refers to God as father. And this is complex in many, in many ways. First of all, my dad, his name is Timothy. He lives in Dallas. That's kind of weird. How is God my father? Second, not all fathers are good. Now, my hope and my prayer is that you have a father who loves you, who's with you, who's there, but you would be the exception in this culture, in this country. Fatherhood is a broken term. Many don't have a father, and if they do, they're harsh, they neglect, they're discouraging, they're absent. And, and Jesus is not trying to liken God to the, our, our definition of father, but in, instead he is, is defining father the way it needs to be, the way it should be, the way it was intended to be, And he says that God is not only a father, but he's a wholly different father. He's a better father. He's the best father. Maybe you're harsh. Maybe your dad was harsh, but mine's different. So God is redefined by Jesus as a father. Not only that, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He also redefines sin. So if you're anything like me, you read the story and you think, the younger brother is the sinner. The younger brother represents my my traditional understanding of sin. The fool was selfish. He lied, he stealed, he cheated, to do whatever he wanted to get for him, right? He ran off and he did all sorts of wicked things. He, he ate up his dad's money with prostitutes, with, with reckless living. That's sin, and, and, and therefore, he goes to the pigs. And that's poetic justice, that makes sense. But I think Jesus is redefining understanding of sin in a way uh, we, we can only see if we look close. Because so I want you to notice something. Both brothers use the Father to get what they really want, which is status and wealth. And hear me, Christians of the Bible Belt, one of them does it by being very, very bad, but the other does it by being very, very good. One of them does it by being very bad, one of them does it by being very, very good. And so what I think is, is so confusing about this is we're like, okay, well, brother? he never did anything wrong, but, but we see he doesn't, he doesn't care about the Father. He cares about stuff. And, and, but before we go any further, I want you to turn back with me to verse one. Turn back with me to verse one, and I want you to, to see who is the audience, who is Jesus talking to? Starting in verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribe grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is talking to two different crowds here. One, we have the tax collectors and the sinners. Tax collectors, the ones that had betrayed their country. The sinners, man, that was the prostitutes. Those were the people that had committed offenses or sins that were so grievous that they were outcasts from the society. They were the ones that no one wanted to spend any time with. And so this is the younger brother, the ones whose decisions had made them lost and they'd run away. And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes. Man, the Pharisees and the the scribes, they are just the most awesome people. They, They had a whole like judicial law system and everything and they had all the commands not only memorized, but they followed them. They were super holy, high omega, awesome studs, right? They made the pastors at Grace Bible Church look weak in their obedience to God. Yet we see that they didn't use that to love God, they used that to love themselves. You know, these guys, I don't know about you, but the Bible says that, that they, they brought spices as an offering. They like gave tithes on their spices. I never brought coriander or oregano and put it in the offering plate. That would have been weird, right? But these people did it. They were that good and that holy and that high, right? But Jesus is saying, no, you've used your devoutness to God and you're zealous for obeying God's commands to put God Make God like a genie in a bottle that has to serve your bidding. You, you, you use all your obedience to try to earn a bargaining chip, to bargain with God and get what you really want. And if that doesn't make sense, look again uh, what the older brother says. He says, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You, you never gave me this. It's not fair. I did this and that for you. Now you have to do this for me. So what we see is, is Jesus says in this parable there are two ways people try to take the place of God. And let's start with the older brother. The older brother, he's the Sunday school kid. His life is about morality. You know, and, and I'm, what, it, what it means is I'm gonna obey all the rules and I'm gonna do that to make you listen to me. And, and then I'm gonna ask what I really want. I'm gonna ask for what I really want. So the good people are in, but the bad people are out. The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. So if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I go to Sunday school and do all these rules, then God has to bless me. And so how this works, when this, when this Sunday school kid is a young child, his mother walks into the room and says, son, I want you to vacuum the living room. And being the Sunday school, the smart kid he is, he says, mother, dear mother, of course I'll vacuum the living room. Not only that, but I'm going to vacuum the rest of the house. And so he goes and he's smart. So he, he, he vacuums the whole house and he waits a couple hours. He comes back to his mother and he says, mother, you know, I vacuumed the whole house for you. Oh, yes, honey, I'm, I'm so thankful. You, you, I know you love me. I do love you. I do love you. And actually, not only that, but I've cleaned my room seven times today. It's spotless. It's clean. I use Pledge, and it smells great. And, and I have I've cleaned the bathroom, and I, I, I've thought about you, and I wrote a note. Here, here it is. And, and, and he does all of these things, and his mom, wow, you really do love me. And mom, I don't know if you heard this, but there's this new Xbox game that came out, and I know you love me, and I'm kind of excited about playing it, but if you wouldn't mind, could we go get that today? And you see the hypocrisy here. You see the problem. The kid does not care about his mom. He cares about the mom's bank account. And if you have a little brother, you see that happen all the time. He's like, no, I see right through it. You know, and and we see this all the time, whether it's you have a guy buying a puppy to try to get attention from women. Like, are you kidding me? Girls squeal at that. Like, why? I don't know. But anyways... (laughs) Anyways, okay, so, so this is our, our picture of what happens and, and uh, for the older brothers, what they look like, and then we have we have the rebellious younger brother. He is he is completely the opposite. He is, I'm going to define my own reality. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for me, and I'm going to find my true, true self, experience what I want and do as I please. The open-minded people are in. The judgmental people are out, right? The way to avoid Jesus is to find my value and my worth in something completely different and see how it plays out. So, so if you're the rebellious younger child, your mom comes in and you're in the kitchen and she says, honey, the stove's hot, don't touch it. If you're a rebellious younger child, your first instinct is to see how long you can hold your hand on the stove to prove her wrong, right? Don't tell me what to think. I'm going to find out for myself. And that's how it works. Some I mean, of you're nodding. Ooh, rebellious children. Okay, so... Um, but this is, this is how it works. And Jesus says, there's two ways we try to take the place of God. And I think something that so beautifully sums up this dynamic is, uh, incoming freshmen at Texas A&M. Incoming freshmen beautifully, beautifully illustrate this. And I don't know if you can remember back that far, maybe you're a senior, you're like, I don't remember that, but I remember. And right now we've got a new batch of them and they're on their way. Okay. And so they're getting ready for a new student conference. So they already haven't gone and they're Signed up for Impact and signed up for Fish Camp and they're buying their maroon apparel and they're freaking out because they have all this newfound independence. Be away from their parents finally and they're so excited. This is gonna be great. And they think, they think when they get here that my newfound independence means that I can become whoever I want to. That I just can, if I was a dork in high school, hey, there's no Letterman jackets in college. So no jockeys, this is great. I'm in, I'm gonna be cool. I'm gonna fit in. I'm gonna get a really hot day and it's gonna be great. Life's going to change for me, and that's an illusion, right? We know, we know that's an illusion. There's really, truly, three categories incoming freshmen fall into. The first category: I'm going to use my newfound independence to prove myself. I'm going I'm to show that with no one looking behind my back, that I can maintain all the rules my parents set for me. You know, so here's what I'm going to do: I am going to follow all the rules. I'm going to listen to my professors. I'm gonna do my homework. I'm not gonna cuss, I'm not gonna drink, I'm not gonna party, and no drugs, for sure no drugs. I have to get a great GPA so I can get an awesome job. Right? And when I get that awesome job, it's gonna be great, because I'll have a great great internship before then and life is gonna be perfect, and then some girl will want me and we'll get married and have a great family, and this is the way the life's supposed to go, right? The American dream. Here we go. Yes, right? That's the way they think. But every every single freshman, this was me, every single freshman meets some kind of rejection. So maybe you failed a class that you needed to pass, and it was only spring semester, so you have to wait till next year to take it again, and by that time, you're so far behind, you just question, should I even do this major anymore? From I'm already failing now, All right? Or maybe you, you had a relationship that you really thought, God had called me to. God had called me to this relationship. And you break up, and you're like, what, what is happening or maybe there was that internship you know you needed and someone else got it or the job you wanted and it didn't fall through or you couldn't get into the major you wanted and you start freaking out. God, where are you? I've been following all the rules. And you're shocked and you're angry just like the older brother was. And why are you shocked? Why are you angry? Well, I think, I think underneath it all, you're shocked and you're angry because you're trying to hide pain and you're trying to, trying to hide shame. Why? Because you were the best person you could possibly be. You worked your hardest, you tried your best to earn people's approval, to get respect and to get the things that you knew you needed, and you did all the things that, you, that people told you to do, and then when you did them, it didn't work out for you. And so that leaves you questioning. Well, if I did, did my best and my best wasn't enough, then what's wrong with me? Then who would want me? And if you're asking yourself this question, you're not alone. You're not alone. Because every, every category is asking this question. All of us in this room are asking that question. The other category is, is the exact opposite. It's the younger brother, right? So the younger brother, when he gets his newfound independence, what he's going to do is say, hey, there's no one watching me. I'm going to do whatever I want to. Whatever feels good. Whatever pleases me. My parents aren't watching. I don't care that they're paying for my college. They ain't going to see. And there's no consequences for my decisions, right? So... I'm jumping into the wild parties. I'm getting smashed. I'm getting hammered. I'm getting high, and it's awesome. I'm looking up with all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. And then, as you walk down that trail, you make a realization. You realize that it's not bringing you the satisfaction you wanted. You realize that there is an overwhelming shame and guilt that's bearing up in your soul, and you don't know what to do with it. And, and you start asking the same question. I've put on my best act put in my best act to impress people, to make people like me. And I did things to feel loved or to feel accepted, but it led to the opposite, and I wish I never would have done them. And it's too late for me, because shame and guilt have taken its toll, and I'm damaged goods. Who would want this? Who would want me? And maybe some of you can write with that, but you're like, whoa, ho, 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 Andrew, chill out, dude. Chill out, bro. I, I'm not some religious prude. And I have not fallen off the deep end. I am a Christian, and I love God, and I go to Bible study. And I'm normal. I don't judge people. I'm not all about, like, putting people down. I'm a nice, caring, gentle individual who goes to breakaway. I'm a good person. Right? Right? So this is the third category of people. We think we're better, but our rebellion or our, uh, our obedience looks a little bit more subtle. And it goes like this. Then maybe, maybe I'm gonna trust God with most of my life. But but there are certain areas that are off limits, right? Certain areas that God can't touch. So, God, you, you have all of me, but don't tell me how to spend my money. I'm not giving money to those pastors because they're just are just I'm not that's not like a plug or anything, but you know. Or or maybe God, I'll follow you, but you better give me a ring before spring. And if I am 30 and still single, we are finished. We are done. There is no way I'm following you if you do not give me a husband, not give me a spouse. I'm ugh, right? Or maybe I'll follow you as long as you give me this job. You make sure I have steady income. You take care of my family. You give me a family, first of all. A wife who respects me and loves me, listens to everything I say. Children who, who hear every single word I say the first time and follow my every command. Whatever, whatever it is for you. We all have something like that. It's like, God, I will follow you. It's the cross and, right? Cross and this and that and that. Or maybe we have a little bit of rebellion because a little bit of rebellion makes us feel like a little buzz. Like, oh, it's great. It's good, right? So incoming freshmen, what what did you do? Well, for me, when I got off, my parents were gone. I am up until 4.30 in the morning because I am awesome, right? No one can tell me what to do. I have no bedtime. Nutrition? Ha, Right. I have a meal plan, and this is like I swipe my card and get pizza whenever I want. This is awesome. So every single meal I'm eating is either pizza, ramen noodles, Easy Mac, <laughs> Pop Tarts, or, or like, like if for breakfast I might have like a vitamin and call it, you know, because I woke up five minutes before class, wasn't have time to eat, so I pop a vitamin, and then it's a meal. If you do that in this room, stop it. <laughs> that is not. That is that is a supplement. That is not a meal. You will. There comes a point in a man's life where ramen noodles will no longer nu- keep him alive. A man needs nutrition at some point. So, so we can do what we want. And I, I stayed up late and I had no bedtime. But then I would wake up for class at 8 a.m. and like, hate my life. What is wrong with me? Oh, it's you got no sleep, dummy. You thought you had control. But in reality, it kind of turned its back on you, right? You're confused and surprised as to why this happened to you. Or Maybe, maybe you're going to class and it's like geology or physics and you're like my professor i'm like a major that's like right brains and so i don't need this class and all he does is read the slides anyways all i need to just to see to pass the class i can just study at my own time he posts the slides up so i'm not even go to class i'll go next time but i just don't want to go today well then it kind of feels good right i studied it felt great and i'm not going to go to class ever again and then the final comes around and you're like i don't know anything what do i do and I, I thought i had control but now my life is out of control. And I'm freaking out because this one science credit that I need to take is ruining my life, right? Or maybe you're like, hey, hey, bro, I'm not fooling around with women. I'm not messing with their hearts. I'm a, I'm a brother, respecting my sisters. But maybe what you're doing by yourself on the internet alone is no different. Or maybe despite everything, everything the Bible says, contrary to this, you cannot shake the thoughts of insecurity, and every time you look into a mirror, you question you question your beauty and you doubt your worth. Who would want this? I am too far gone. I have messed up. I'm not good enough. And I think it's into this place that Jesus not only redefines God and sin, but he redefines salvation. He redefines salvation. So so this entire world is full with people who are trying to justify themselves by either being really obedient or really, really rebellious, right? But in God's eyes, there is no such thing as good and bad, judgmental, open-minded. All there are are sinners in the same place, on the same level, in need of grace. We've all fallen short. We've all messed up. And none of us can, can, can get rid of the cancer that it is the sin in our lives. None of us. And so how do we get saved? Well, from this text, we say, Jesus says that we need three different things. The first thing we need to get saved, the first thing we need in this redefined salvation is the initiating love of the Father. Read with me again, starting in verse 18. I will will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We see that this... The younger son, when he realizes his sin, devises this three-part apology. Remember, it's the restitution plan. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of coming back into the family. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he comes up to his father, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father interrupts him right there. You might think that's just kind of how it works. But that's a pretty significant interruption. Because he doesn't get the third part out. The third part is how he's going to pay his father back. The the third part is, here's what I'm going to do to make sure that you and I are okay again. Here's what I'm going to do to do my best to show you that I'm sorry. That I know I'm not enough. I know I've messed up. I know I've done these things wrong. Let me pay you back. And his father interrupts him and says, no, put the best robe on him. Give him feet, give him shoes on his feet and give him a ring on his finger and we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate. What is Jesus telling us about our heavenly father? How does Jesus look at us in this moment? I think he's trying to tell us this. I think he's trying to tell us that he loves the first two part of that apology, but he hates the third part. Yes, you are a sinner. And yes, you are unworthy. But you stop right there. You are always my child. And nothing will separate you from that. Nothing will change the reality that I love you despite you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. And in those moments where you feel unworthy, I want you to remember that. You are always my son. You are always my child. And we see that the son says nothing. He has said nothing, and the father runs to him. He's felt compassion. He runs. He embraces. He kisses. Before one word comes out of the out of of the son's mouth, he's he's being kissed and he's being embraced. And it's so countercultural. It's so opposite of everything that we could ever imagine. But this is what the father does. He initiates with his younger son. But not only that, he initiates. He initiates with the older son. After being publicly insulted, he, he goes out to him and he pleads with him as a child. Remember, the older brother represents the Pharisees and the Pharisees would, would one day kill Jesus. They would lead to his crucifixion. They hated him and wanted him dead. He was a challenge and a threat to their power and so they wanted him gone. And yet Jesus initiates in love with them as well. Jesus loves everyone, and it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but not a repentance that, that you or I think of. It's not just a repentance of the, our list, and that's, that's the next thing. The second thing we need is we learn how to, need to learn how to repent from more. We need to learn how to repent from more than just our actions, and what do I mean by that? Well, we see that the son realizes he's messed up, and he comes back with his list. I've done this. I've done that. I was wrong. I'm sorry you know, Father, take me back, right? He had a big old list and a long line of things, but we also see the older brother says, I've obeyed every command and I've never, never turned aside from you to the right or the left. I've, I followed you. I've got nothing on my list. But we just decided and saw from the text that both are sinners in need of grace. And so there's gotta be something more we gotta repent from. There's gotta be something more we have to turn from. And here it is. We need to learn how to turn from the heart that made us feel entitled to take the place of God in the first place. For the younger son, it was, I have the right to ask for my inheritance before my father is dead. For the older brother, it's, I have a right to a young goat. I have a right to a young goat because I've served my father. Sense of entitlement. The problem is, both were in love with status, with wealth, with fame, with power, with all the other things this world consumes us with, right? And God says, wrong. You are to love me, and you are to love me alone. I am to be your God and no other. Because everything else is counterfeit. Everything else will betray you, but I will never forsake you. And finally, so we need the initiating love of the Father. We need, we need to learn how to repent from more than just our actions. And finally, we need to understand what it costs to bring you home. You need to understand what it costs to bring you home. You must see what it cost God to get you back in the house because it was free for the younger brother but it was unbelievably expensive for the older, older brother and the father. And you might ask, why, why did you throw the older brother? And that makes no sense. Well, it does if you read verse 31 with me. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. What does he mean by that? I think he means just that. I gave a third of my, my, my property away, and now everything that I have is going to go to you. It's all yours. It's all yours. And so that means the and calf, the best robe, the ring, the sandals, those are all going to the older brother had the younger brother not come back into the picture. And it's why the older brother is so furious. This is supposed to be mine. And I think Jesus purposely puts in such a nasty elder brother to show us what the Pharisees really look like what would a true elder brother have looked like? What what would a true elder brother have done? Well, I think he would have seen his father's agony and he would have said, Father, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna find my brother, your son. And if he's ruined himself and if he's in a far distant country, I'm gonna gonna go and I'm gonna find him and I'm gonna bring him back at at my own expense. Jesus, Jesus puts in such a nasty elder brother so that we would long for the right one. The younger brother didn't have one. He didn't have a true elder brother but we do, but we do. And we don't need someone to go across a nation at the expense of his wallet. We need someone to come down from heaven to earth at the expense of his life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And on the cross, Jesus was stripped of all of his clothes so that we could be clothed in robes of honor. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. He died the death that we deserve so that we could have his life. And on the cross, for the very first time, Jesus refers to his God, his father as God, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he's no longer being regarded as a son so that you and I could be. This is the gospel. This is the message that changes the world. This is the message that differentiates Christianity from every single religion, every single pursuit. This is why Jesus is better even though you can't see him. This is why Jesus is better, even though you can't feel him sometimes. But he loves you and he wants you home. And so if you're a Christian here, I hope it's a strong encouragement that your savior loves you and he, he did whatever it cost to get you home because you were that valuable to him. And your worth is no longer determined by what your subconscious thinks, but by what he did. And that's why it's free for you to come home because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. First John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We are children of God. If you believe that Jesus died on your behalf, and if you believe through faith that he resurrected, you're part of the family. And we get to spend forever with him. And though this body might die, we have another one coming that's going to last forever in paradise with him, better than anything we could possibly imagine. And I want you to hear something. Jesus knows. Jesus knows everything. Everything that you've done in darkness, everything that you've done in light, he knew about it even before you did it. And when he went to the cross, I want you to understand that nothing, nothing was dirty enough, wicked enough, gross enough, wanton enough to make him not go up on the cross on your behalf. He did it for you. So that you could come home. And so if you don't know Jesus, all you have to do is start walking home. And the father's going to run to you. He's going to put his arms around you. And though you don't feel good enough, he's going to remind you, you are. He's going remind you that he loves you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what his son did on your behalf. I want to end today reading out of the Psalms. Psalm 68, verses five through six. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families and he leads the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live a sun-scorched land. The truth is, the older brother and the younger brother, they're all rebellious. They're all wayward and running away from God, but God has come to you, and if you would but look at him in faith, you would find the freedom and the longing that you can't find in the darkness, you can't find in any other pursuit. So this is my prayer for you guys. I'm, I'm going off, but, but this message remains the same. It changed. It never changes. It is always there for you. If you don't want it this week, it'll be back again for you next week, but take it. Because the first time Jesus came, he came to bear your judgment, not to give it. But next time, it's going to be different. We don't know when that's coming. And so I'd urge you, he loves you, he proved it, he brought you home, he paid the bill. Would you pray with me? Lord, I I thank you um, for these men and women. Um, Lord, I thank you, uh, Lord, that you're holding them through finals. I know, Finals are going to be Monday, and then everything starts up again on Tuesday, and people are tired and they don 't have as many friends as they do nor- during the normal year, and maybe some of them have secret sins that they haven 't told anybody about and it's eating them up inside and they're doubting how you could ever love them and Lord, I pray today they would have heard from you and they're hearing from you now that you love them despite them and Jesus, I pray if, if someone in here does not know you, they're here for the first time, Lord, they would hear hear what I have said, uh, Lord, uh, a foolish man I pray I pray your spirit would stir in their heart a desire to know you, a desire to to hear your voice. And Lord, I pray that those in here who don't know you would maybe just ask, hey, show me that these things are true. One, because I know you love to answer that prayer. Um, And and so thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for never failing. And we give this Sunday to you. We give this semester to you. And I pray, Jesus, you would uh, just keep us safe and remind us that there's nothing better in this life than your love for us. Amen.